0: Welcome back to a brand new series of Theoretically Speaking. I'm Hannah Fowler. Here with me today is Isabel González, and we are very excited to get going with this first episode.
1: That's right, Hannah. So let's get started straight away. As many other theoretical chemists, I'm used to focusing on fairly small systems. So I thought it would be interesting to see how theoretical chemistry is put into practice for much bigger ones. For this purpose, we have chosen to look at how computational methods can be used for solving problems in biological and organic chemistry. If we
0: just think about what happens during an organic reaction, then I'm sure a lot of us will immediately think of reactions proceeding by, for example, addition, substitution or elimination. We can then also divide these categories down into those carried out by nucleophiles, electrophiles and even free radicals which are highly reactive. Very quickly, it becomes apparent that there are a lot of combinations of methods for getting from reactants to products. We call these routes which could be taken, reaction pathways. However, organic reactions can often take a number of routes, and a lot of the time these are all competing with each other.
1: This already sounds like a very confusing problem, but how does computational chemistry come into it?
0: Well, Izzy, experiments alone cannot always tell us which of these routes are being taken, and that's why we need to use computational chemistry. It can help us determine which of these pathways is being taken.
1: However, in these kinds of reactions, as we have said before, the systems we are looking at are often much larger than those used for high-level theoretical calculations. This means that the calculations will become very expensive, and by this, we mean that they will take a very long time to compute. Therefore, surely we'll need to utilise some new methods and make some approximations to help. Exactly so, and this can be particularly important when looking at
0: biological systems, since these consider very large molecules such as enzymes. Our listeners might remember the episode from last series, which looked at QMMM methods as an example of solving these kinds of problems. And this is a great example of methods which don't take too long to compute and can give you the important information you're looking for.
1: Quite right, and the biological system example also raises another interesting consideration, that of solvent effects. If we model something like an enzyme and we are thinking of it as part of a biological process, then it will normally be found in solution. But when modelling things in solution, it becomes a much more complicated calculation compared to that for the gas phase. You have a huge number of solvent molecules all interacting with the reaction. So you have to decide whether to use an implicit or explicit solvent model to simulate these interactions. Not only
0: that, but we can't forget other factors such as stereochemistry and the associated steric effects.
1: So we can conclude then that there is a lot to consider when we are looking at these types of reactions.
0: Yes, and a lot of things like these are considered in this paper from Jack's called The Competing Mechanisms of Phosphate Monoester Dianion Hydrolysis, which we'll link below for our listeners. In this paper, there are three possible routes for the aforementioned phosphate hydrolysis reaction to take, and this work carries out calculations to determine which is the most likely. They found some interesting results, including that the pathway choice can be dependent on the departing leaving group.
1: To help us investigate this further, We have spoken to Professor Fernanda Duarte at the University of Oxford about her work in biological systems and organic reaction mechanisms. Hello, Fernanda. Thank you for joining us today. We know that you have many research interests which are all connected together in the purpose of bettering understanding the concepts in organic chemistry. So how do you use computational chemistry
2: to solve the problems that you encounter in this field? What we try to do is to to use uh, computers to, uh, as a microscope to really see how reactions are happening, and and what are the bottleneck for a given process to take place. Trying to understand why a given molecule is reactive and how that is going on is very difficult to to observe experimentally, and computers can help us to address that challenge. So often, why can't we rely only on experiments to answer these questions? Well, there are some uh, aspects that are very challenging for experiment. In principle, we would like to have a very detailed <coughs> kinetic model of any given reactions. But some reactions take place very fast or very slow. And, and that is the first aspect where computation can provide insight about the molecules and how the molecules at the microscopic level are reacting. Uh, second aspect I will consider is, is the more economical aspect. Computation allow us to, to do those studies with the less uh, waste instead of energy, money, and also producing less waste. That is, of course, environmentally important these days. So we've had a discussion about your
0: paper on the competing mechanisms of phosphate monoester dianion hydrolysis. So could you explain how you use computational methods to answer questions the experiment couldn't?
2: In that case, the question for us was very basic: was how this reaction is taking place in solution. And actually, that is very relevant because those reactions are relevant in biology, but actually, we think that we have to get a good understanding of uncatalyzed processes before going to complex systems. And what happens here is those reactions are very, very slow. They will take millions of years without enzymes. And therefore, it's very difficult to measure some of the processes. What experimentalists do, they usually choose very reactive compounds. And those, we have good data to compare. So what we did here is to use those data and and repeat the calculations, like trying to understand first the, the molecular level aspect of those reactions, but also try to explore those processes that are hidden kind of for experiment because they are just very slow. And in this case, I will summarize that the three main aspects that we were able to read through computation was first obtain a molecular understanding of the experimental data already available, how we can connect that to biological processes that are relevant, and also provide some guidelines about how easy or difficult it will be to experimentally measure some more different difficult compounds.
1: In here, you were looking at relatively small organic molecules, but the available degrees of freedom to scale up fairly quickly. In this paper, you mentioned that limiting the studies to the analysis of potential energy surfaces with only two degrees of freedom might mean that we are missing out on some important reaction pathways. How do you usually work around this in order to minimize such
2: loss of information? Yeah, that was a very challenging process because actually we, we were missing a key pathway eh, when we restrained those degrees of freedom. And as degrees of freedom increase, we need more sampling. That is the key aspect. And now we try to use these different techniques, classic and quantum, in order to explore the surfaces. If it's an electronic potential energy surface, maybe using different starting points to see there is no crossing between the different potential energy surfaces available. If you were thinking about conformational aspect, then we try to enforce a sampling by biasing the simulations or using temperature, because that allows us to provide kinetic energy for the system to explore a broader areas of the surfaces.
1: So more generally, in your research, you also use a variety of methods such as MD, QM, and DFT. So how do you decide between them which one is most appropriate for the work
2: you are doing in each case? Last week, we were discussing that with the students. And what I was asking them is every time that you're thinking about running a calculation and using computation in chemistry, think about three main questions. What is the question that you want to answer? The chemical problem that you have? What is the system that you have? if it's on a small system or it's a large system. And also, what are the resources that you have? You may aim to do something very interesting, but if you have a very tiny computer, you may need to limit your computational experiment to something much uh, smaller. So I think that considering time scale of the process and the size of the system are the two main aspects. If you want to study, for example, a small system, organic molecules, 20 atoms, and electronic is important, then a DFT approach can be good. But then if you're looking at a virus self-assembly process there, most likely MD simulations where the time scale allow allow you to go much further will be the the best, most suitable.
1: That's also very useful for all of us doing research in other fields.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, you've mentioned DFT, and our next question uh, is about the same subject and for the keen listeners of the podcast out there you might remember the episode from tim and david last year which covered this topic just as a reminder in dft we use a functional and basis set together to approximate the energy of a molecule but there are lots of different functional and basis set combinations you can have so assuming you've used the same basis set fernanda and for example two functionals during your calculations what happens if they produce disparate suggestions as to which pathway is more likely I think
2: that we, many of us computational chemists have experienced that when exploring the functional zoo that you have available now. And I will consider two main aspects kind of in parallel. First, go back to the literature and to see why at the beginning I initially uh, took those functionals for the system. And maybe go back to read the paper again. If those functionals, for example, were parameterized or had many parameters taken from experimental values, which were the molecules initially use for those uh, parametrization. Maybe my molecule is not inside that data set, and I should not expect those functional to work. And on the other hand, and kind of in parallel, I will try to use a kind of the smallest possible system that can still represent the chemistry. So for example, in organocatalysis, you have very big catalysts, sometimes 200 atoms. But most of them are in side chains that are not really relevant for the chemistry. They are important for selectivity, but not for the chemistry. So we can develop a very tiny model, twenty atoms about, and then use high-level quantum chemistry calculations to use benchmark. And then we can understand maybe some of the functionals are just not providing the basic chemistry that we need for describing the system. And it's in this tiny model, we can already learn what are the challenges that one of those functionalists is it's not overcoming.
1: When considering possible reaction pathways then, do you ever have to think about more unusual transition states which might not have been considered before in these types of
2: reactions? Oh yes, yeah. sometimes we have huge surprises. We, we usually start with the approach kind of chemistry, intuition approach we call, that is just using arrow pushing. We know where the electrons can move and where they can go. And, and those are the starting points. But then during the process, we need to reevaluate, and sometimes it's very useful to use even very basic models to understand the intrinsic reactivity of a given molecule, because maybe solvent or other interactions might affect where those electrons are, are located. And that has happened to us before. We assumed that electrons were moving from one place to another when actually our starting point was not right. And I think that very important is to combine with new automation tools that can facilitate that process. And also interact with experimentalists because sometimes we may be missing some of the counter ions or solvent or any additives that they may be using that are key for considering other reaction pathway. That's
0: really interesting. And that really takes me back to the undergraduate lectures I did of electron pushing, which I'm sure a lot of us uh, have experienced in the past.
1: so to this end, are there any theoretical checks that you can carry out to ensure you've considered enough
2: possibilities to be confident that you are including the correct pathway? Yeah, I think there will be, a again, a combination of experimental data. Try to analyze and make sure that I'm using all the data available possible, that I know the literature related to the system. Sometimes the system that I will be studying is new, but I can compare to others that have been explored before, having an initial validation and also a uh, careful detail uh, analysis of experimental and computational data available from before is, is important. One type of calculation will not be enough, and what we have seen is combining those tools, for example, linear free energy relationships, kinetic isotope effect measurement, in the top of activation energy is, is a way for us to, to go and to approach challenging problems because we know that in some cases... Methodology cannot be very quantitative, but actually all these qualitative features that we get from different places are what allow us to be confident about our study. Recently, you also published a
0: paper with Rob Payton, who's now in Colorado, USA, about chiral anion phase transfer catalysis. This constituted a first of theoretical studies in this area and demonstrated the capabilities of computational chemistry in understanding organic mechanisms.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about what you did in this research? We really enjoyed that kind of research because there was a collaborative work that we did trying to combine our knowledge, myself coming from an enzyme modelling community, to his expertise in computational organic chemistry. And asymmetric catalysis is very important and chemists have been using different approaches, one of them is ion-pair catalysis. But actually, it was not well studied until recently by computational chemists because in contrast to hydrogen bond catalysis, you don't have any directionality there. It's just based in the electrostatic interactions. Therefore, for me, the, the first aspect was if we would have non-directional interactions, maybe empty simulation and solvent effect must be key to, to describe those electrostatic processes. And that was the first approach that we took, just to first understand how those uh, ions interact, the chiral catalyst that is anionic with the substrate that is cationic. So that was the first idea to understand in a very easy and simple way, first effect of the interactions and also the different conformations that you can get. And and then only after that, explore what are the selectivity patterns that provide such an anti-selectivity. The experiment was done uh, several years ago, 10 years ago, by the group of Stoes in the US. But actually, we're very surprised that people wasn't exploring that computationally. And and we have seen that actually combining very uh, classical tools in this way, we're able to get a very good understanding and hopefully make predictions in the future in that area.
1: I think that really summarizes the power of computational chemistry in organic chemistry. So getting a little bit out of topic, something that I think we are all very keen to know is where do you see this work going in the future?
2: Like, let's say in five years. Yeah, I think that uh, now computational chemistry is, is just on a stage that is, is very exciting. We, we feel that we have just touched the surface of what we can do when we combine chemistry, computation, and automation. I think that learning all this key and combining them is, is key. I, I see computation as a tool that we will use chemists, but also other areas uh, in the way that now NMR is used kind of a more democratic way where computation is key and provide an simple but very powerful understanding of chemical reaction. Um, recently in a conference, someone mentioned, I will just rephrase kind of in my own words, that AI and all the new machine learning approaches will not replace chemists, and that for sure will not happen, but will most likely replace people that is not being educated in those uh, with those new tools. And I think that for us is key to interact and to know the challenges are chemists are facing but also learning from computer science what we can use to speed up our uh, research.
0: And finally you've had a very successful career so far so do you have any advice for young women who are planning to embark on careers in science and for those who already have?
2: Instead of I will think about young researchers because it's very difficult to be a young researcher now uh, for women and, and any other person in the area. Plan ahead you always want to focus on your own science, and that happened to me, and I'm still trying to force myself to do that. Just try to plan ahead. Science is one aspect, but communicating that and trying to apply that is also very important. And second, more importantly, I think, is don't try to take all the advice that you listen. Many people will like to give you advice. Uh, they will try to give you something, advice on things that work for them, things that they hope they could know, they will know it at that time. And sometimes you feel like overwhelmed with all these advices that you're trying to put at work every day. So just choose and and see what is best for you.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. I will take that on board.
1: Well, Fernanda, thank you so much for talking to us today. We've really enjoyed this discussion and definitely know a lot more about the need for computational methods in unravelling problems in organic chemistry.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thanks again to Professor Fernanda Duarte for speaking with us on this topic. And if our listeners are looking at these types of reactions or systems too, then please do get in touch or comment to tell us about it. We'd love to hear what other people are doing in this area.
1: Not only that, but if you have any questions or comments about this episode, or even better, what you'd like the podcast to cover next, then let us know on Twitter or Instagram at TheoryPod, or on the Theoretically Speaking Facebook page. And don't forget to
0: give us a follow or like whilst you're there to stay up to date with the podcast. And finally, we'd like to thank TMCS and the EPSRC for supporting this podcast, and all of you for listening. Do join us next time for some more exciting theoretical chemistry discussion. You've been listening to Theoretically Speaking.